Welcome to Season 2, Episode Alpha of Summer Reading with the Deals. I'm your host, Adam Deal, and this is my wife. Whitney Deal. Uh, Josephine, our baby daughter, will probably join us at some point, but on this episode, she's with Grandmom. So, uh, without further ado, Whitney, what is our selection for Season 2? We are discussing Flannery O'Connor's short story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge. So uh, this episode, episode alpha, uh, is going to be just talking about why we chose this and then kind of how we're structuring this season, which is going to be very similar to the first season, uh, which was William Faulkner's 1936 novel, Absalom, Absalom, the best novel yet written by an American, in Faulkner's opinion. Um, but we did talk extensively about it, and maybe he's right, uh, at least as of 1936. So uh, one of the questions I guess we could consider throughout this uh, season is, is this the best short story collection yet written by an American? <laughs> but um, but seriously, folks. Flannery um, O'Connor understood the spiritual danger of claiming something like that, so yes. she didn't say that for well, herself. And, and it was pu- published posthumously, so uh, she died in 1964, and uh, it was published in January 1965. So... Um, this is not going to be an extensive Flannery O'Connor biography podcast. There are a lot of those, and they're very good, some of them. Uh, I haven't listened to every single one of them, but the ones I've listened to, by and large, are good. Uh, and there's actually one other podcast that covers this story collection called Close Reads, uh, which is by the Searcy Institute. And um, it has some interesting insights, but I would say that podcast is much more focused on Flannery O'Connor than the stories themselves. I feel like the stories are, are a means to an end to get to talk about Flannery. And we're, we're definitely going to talk about Flannery O'Connor on this, but we're going to talk a lot about the stories themselves, just like we did with Faulkner and Absalom Absalom. I feel like we really focused on the novel and, and talked about Faulkner incidentally rather than, you know, mainly. Um, so uh, that's what we're going to do with this. And uh, Whitney, let's start with you. Why... Flannery O'Connor, why everything that rises must converge. Well, um, this is our second summer of Southern writers. And I don't think we did that with a great deal of intention. Um, We had thought about reading Dostoevsky this summer, but because we have a little baby at home and we're adjusting to that, um, it seemed like a good summer to do something that we had both engaged with more frequently through teaching it and more recently. So we went with Flannery O'Connor. And um, I do think there's probably a reason, whether we've thought it through fully or not, that we have gravitated toward Southern writers, um, thinking through our own identity, maybe, um, particularly with Flannery O'Connor because she's a Southern Christian writer. She's from Milledgeville, which is only a few hours from where we live in Augusta. And originally from Savannah, but really grew up in Milledgeville for most of her youth and all of her adulthood, with with a few exceptions, which we'll talk about. Right. Um, When I first read O'Connor, I... And I'm going to interject and say that I've noticed as we've been engaging with with um, 
podcasts and documentaries and things that people tend to call her Flannery rather than O'Connor in referring to her. And I think that might be because she has a distinctive first name, but middle name. uh, Right. Mary Flannery O'Connor. But I also have noticed sometimes that female writers tend to be called by their first names like Jane Mm -hmm. rather than Austin or, you know, Charlotte and Emily and Anne, you know, which of course, when you have to differentiate Brontes from one another, that is helpful. But I do think there might be a tendency to like, are we going to say, well, William, yada, yada. And we're talking about Faulkner. That's just not, yes, yeah, that's not the instinct. But, um, so I think I might go with O'Connor in referring to her just to have some equity there. But I, I felt some kind of kinship with with O'Connor um, since the first time I read her stories. Um, I think I'd read a couple of her stories here and there in high school and was assigned maybe one of them in a course. And then in college, I read A Good Man is Hard to Find, the collection. And I never read her work in a class um, ever. I just read it on my own time. And um, it felt in some ways very familiar to me based on, you know, I was brought up in a small town in the South, not far from where she lived. And a lot of time had passed, but I think to some degree in a small rural town in the South, time time passes without as much changing about the kind of like zeitgeist of the town. So all that to say, it felt a bit familiar and things... I noticed that other people were responding to her stories by saying that they were kind of horrible and grotesque and disturbing. And I have a pretty healthy tolerance for the grotesque and and the horrible, I think, in general. Um, I was just talking to someone about In Cold Blood and saying that I assigned it for summer reading or recommended that someone assign it for summer reading once. And I kind of didn't understand how disturbing it would be to some people to read in cold blood. Um, I was like, it's just great. But anyway, all that to say, I felt something very familiar and real in her stories. It didn't seem grotesque and exaggerated. And I, to an extent, I thought, yeah, I know people like these people, and other people seem to think they seem like extreme caricatures or something, and I thought, no, I, I, this feels real to me. Um, now, granted, some of the turns of the events are, are extreme. There's a lot of sudden death and things like that, but um, even that, I mean, there's just some sort of scandalous and shocking and, and horrifying things. I mean, you know, every time I talk to someone from my hometown, I'm like, well, here's another horrifying story that was just told to me completely matter-of-factly. Because when you're from a small town, you you kind of know everyone's a dysfunction, everyone's in each other's business in a way that people just hide it um, when they when they live among more people. Feels more familial. Yeah. So that was a really long answer, but the, the point of the answer, I guess, was to say why Flannery O'Connor initially... I think I felt a kinship with her place and her her characters, and um, they felt real and familiar to me in a way um, that a lot of other things I'd read just didn't. Um, then as I started to understand what her purposes were as a, as a Christian writer specifically, 
um, those became very moving to me. Um, now, uh, as an adult, reading her stories, I have this convicting, unsettling sensation oftentimes when I'm reading them of um, finding a character very off-putting and, and, and flawed and, and just disturbingly like selfish or judgmental and then suddenly seeing myself in that character because it's just so realistically drawn and realizing that I am all those things too. And I, she doesn't allow you, if you're paying attention, she doesn't allow you to sit in the seat of judgment over her characters, even though they deserve judgment. She makes you see that you need, you deserve judgment as well. And mm-hmm. so I have just found them to be, I mean, I walk away from reading her stories feeling humbled a lot of the time and like I need to just be very careful about how I judge others and just the humility of my posture toward God. So I found them to be kind of devotional now as an adult reading them, kind of understanding where she's coming from and her goals. So um, Whitney hit a lot of great points that I, I don't think I can hold them all in my head simultaneously, but I'm going to hit a couple of them and then talk about why uh, everything that rises must converge. And I'm going to pass it back to her and get her to talk about like these particular stories. Um, because we both have taught uh, a good man is hard to find the collection, right? If you, if you taught that specific, I know you've talked stories from it, but right? I have the collected the stories, but, um, a few stories from that, a few stories from this collection. Yes. So um, so for those of you that don't know anything about Flannery O'Connor, but you want to listen anyways, um, she was born in 1925, I think March 25th, um, the same year as my grandparents, or two of my four grandparents, that is. Um, and uh, she died in 1964, I think August of 1964. I could be getting that... that um, month wrong but anyway she died of lupus or complications from lupus uh, at age 39 so um, she was born in Savannah like we mentioned and then moved to Milledgeville pretty early on I think she was about eight Um, her dad moved to Atlanta to work um, on something uh, housing federal housing authority related Um, it's kind of in in the middle middle of the Great Depression and so um, they set up a camp um, in, in Milledgeville and eventually bought a farm that they called Andalusia, which was named after Andalusia, Italy. Um, and so uh, that's where she spent, you know, pretty much all of her, well, most of her formative years and, and most of her adult years. So uh, another thing to know about Flannery, about O'Connor, the thing about calling women by their first names, like, I, I don't know what it is, but it's like, I do the same thing with female uh, recording artists. Like, I call Fiona Apple, Fiona. I would never call her Apple. I would never call Amy Winehouse, Winehouse. I always call her Amy. I think there's something about women creators, female creators, that uh, gives you a certain insight into their minds or their hearts and makes you feel connected to them personally in a different way than male creators. Now, for example, sometimes I call him Van Gogh, but a lot of times I call him Vincent because Vincent Van Gogh signed all his paintings Vincent. He never signed his paintings mm-hmm. Van Gogh. And he creates that intimacy. Exactly. Um, in a way that I actually think that maybe even someone like Vincent Van Gogh was feminized in the way people 
treated him as if he was just overly emotional yes. and didn't show him a lot of respect, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but but now people feel that they can connect with him on a personal level. And Van Gogh's last name is actually pronounced Van Gogh. So uh, people mispronounce his last name. You know, if you call him Van Gogh, that's what I call him. And I, I'm wearing the watch. I have a watch that's the print of Starry Night. So, um, I, you know, I, I don't think, you know, <laughs> everybody knows who you're talking about if you say Van Gogh. Uh, but if you said Vincent, you know, unless you're talking about like Vincent Price, the, you know, the, the horror actor slash voice on the song Thriller by Michael Jackson, um, there really aren't that many other like super famous Vincents, maybe Vin Diesel, um, <laughs> Vincent D'Onofrio. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but but by far, the, the most famous Vincent is, is Vincent Van Gogh. And, of course, the only famous Flannery is Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. Uh, whereas Mary O'Connor, she thought that sounded so Catholic. She said it sounded more Catholic than the Pope. And so, um, you know, uh, one of the things to know about Flannery O'Connor is that she was raised Roman Catholic. She stayed Roman Catholic her whole life. She was very devout to the, the uh, Holy Roman Church. Um, and so... Uh, in the South, that is unusual. Uh, usually in the South, they're more, you know, the South's more Protestant leading. And um, some people would joke that, you know, Flannery, like everybody else was, that was camped with Flannery O'Connor was a Catholic writer, except for Flannery, who was a fundamentalist. And I actually think that that word is applicable because her stories are coming from a fundamentalist Christian point of view, and I mean that in the most literal sense of the way, not not in a disparaging or pejorative way. Um, she is coming from the fundamentals of the faith as preached by Jesus himself and, and taught through Paul's letters and Peter's letters and James and uh, John. And, and so, so she's coming from this very biblical, very churched point of view uh, writing her stories. And so she goes to the Iowa writer. Well, let me s- take a step back. She stays uh, at the hometown college, which at the time was uh, Georgia Women's College, which is now Georgia College and State University in Milledgeville, Georgia. And she was a social sciences major, which is hilarious because she's so disparaging of social sciences and so many of her stories. But I think that she had an aversion to uh, studying literature, maybe because she was one of these, like, I already know more than the professor kind of people. And she... I mean, she's Flannery. Like, she knew a lot. She, she knew what she was doing. But um, I think it, it served her well to kind of be outside of her wheelhouse in the, um, in, in the college years so that when she went to the Iowa, Iowa Writers Workshop, which, by the way, she applied to the journalism school, and she figured out very quickly that she was better suited to be a creative writer than a journalist. Now, creative writer to me, writer is the word I typically use. Uh, creative writer is redundant to me, but then again, I guess you're trying to differentiate between a technical writer and a journalist and a creative writer and a historical writer, and there are a lot of different types of writing you can do, but I think creation uh, is at the heart of all of it because you have to choose your words. So um, she goes to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which was really not the first of its kind necessarily, but certainly the first of its kind to become a haven for writers, and it actually poached a lot of the the fugitives, uh, which are the southern, or the agrarians, I can't remember which, but anyways, they got Robert Penn Warren and John Co. Ransom and Alan Tate and several others, 
um, to come from Nashville to Iowa. And uh, Paul Engel is actually the professor that recruits Flannery. And um, we're actually going to talk about uh, <laughs> the fact that she was uh, in, in the workshop learning and mastering how to write short stories um, when the first edition of Understanding Fiction by Clint Brooks and who, Robert Penn Warren? Yeah. Uh, was published. And by the, by the edited version or the, the expanded version, they include her story. So that's how quickly they recognized her talent uh, within, I think, in 1959. That was when the, the revised edition was, was released, and they put A Good Man's Hard to Find in there. So that's probably her most famous story. We're not going to talk about that one specifically on an episode, but we'll, we'll reference it. Um, but that's definitely her most famous story. Apparently her most anthologized story is Greenleaf, which is in this collection. And... Um, and so she goes to Iowa. She's there, I think, two or three years. And then uh, she goes to the Yado Writers Workshop. Or writers felt, uh, basically, it's like a writer's community. It's, it's, a, uh, it's in the state of New York. And she was just around a bunch of creative people. And yet here she is, this you know, strictly Roman Catholic woman who's going to Mass every day. And then her colleagues are you know, having you know, bacchanalias and orgies and stuff. And she, you know, she did not fit in there at all. Um, but I think it was good for her to, to see the creative class and realize like, I don't know if I want to be around these people all the time. So she moves to New York city to try and you know, make it as a writer. And she makes a lot of headway. I mean, she gets a, a story published her, her story. Um, the geranium, uh, was published. Actually, that might've already been published, before, uh, before she got to New York, but she gets, she makes a lot of her way in. She gets, bless you. She gets, um, uh, in talks with Harcourt Brace to publish her first novel, uh, Wise Blood. And that eventually comes out in 1952. But by that point she is back in Milledgeville, uh, because she basically stays in Yaddo for a year and then lives in New York city and moves out of the city to someplace, you know, within driving distance to the city, where um, the Fitzgeralds live, Sally and Robert Fitzgerald. So if you recognize the name Robert Fitzgerald, it's probably because you have a copy of the Iliad or the Odyssey in front of you. He's probably the most famous translator of those two works, uh, certainly the one that I read when I was in school. Um, but he lives with, the, uh, she lives with them uh, for I think about three years. I think it's like 1949 to 1952. And uh, then she gets sick. And she goes to the doctor, and they're like, we think you should go back to Georgia and get checked out, which, that's kind of fishy. <laughs> I mean, to say, like, you better go ahead and get checked out by your PCP. Uh, <laughs> but, but she does, and uh, the, the thing about lupus uh, is that her dad had lupus, and he died of lupus, and he died fairly young, like in his 30s. So I think Flannery was 13 when he died. Um, that number may be off slightly, but not by much. And, um, and so she kind of had that, uh, possibility in her head. And so as, as she's writing really all of her stories starting, you know, kind of anything she wrote after wise blood is written in, under the cloud of lupus. And certainly the, the collection we're looking at, uh, everything that rises must converge is written when she is on the last stages of lupus. And like I said, she dies before the collection comes out. So 
Uh, one of the reasons that I chose this particular collection rather than A Good Man's Hard to Find and other stories um, is this collection is written in completely in the shadow of death. Um, and I find these stories to be just like getting struck by lightning every time. I mean, every story I read, I was just like, this story is, is amazing. It, it is just awe-inspiring. It's convicting to the bone. It's um, genius. I, I mean, there are not enough adjectives in the English language to describe how enthusiastic I am about these stories. Um, the reason that, that I wanted to do this particular collection was I, I felt like not only was this Flannery O'Connor <laughs> uh, at, at her best, but I thought it was at her most spiritually urgent. Uh, the stories in A Good Man's Hard to Find, for example, do not all have spiritual um, uh, kind of, kind of uh, DNA. Like a, a Late Encounter with the Enemy is a good example. That story is very much about the South and uh, the Old South versus the New South, for example. At the very end of the story, um, Sally Poker Sash's nephew is drinking a Coca-Cola which is a, a great sign of the New South. Like, that's a sign of, uh, of uh, one of the great revenue generators of Atlanta, Georgia, whereas the sign, sign of the Old South, General um, Flintlock Poker Sash, I think, that's right, um, he's 104 years old, and he's the last surviving Confederate, I think, in the state of Georgia, you know, in, in, the, in the context of that story. And so um, that story just doesn't have the spiritual um, uh, underpinnings that really all of the stories in this, in this collection do. Um, but it does have that, that uh, underpinning of the South and of the racial relations that are happening in the South and the, and the changes in those relations, um, which, you know, we talked about that extensively with Absalom Absalom last, last season. Uh, but we'll... we'll you know, we'll get back into it with, with this collection. And so uh, Flannery O'Connor is, is writing about racial relations. She's writing about creativity. She's writing about familial relations. She's writing about uh, maybe like changing gender roles in, in, this, you know, in the Southern culture. She's obviously writing about spiritual matters. Um, but these stories, to me, come across as Flannery receiving inspiration from the Holy Spirit and just writing like she's going to die. And um, what, better, what better thing to read, you know, coming out of the COVID, you know, pandemic of a year um, where we just feel like we were obsessed with dying and whether or not we were going to die. And, you know, I personally wasn't that afraid I was going to die of COVID, but I know I'm going to die. So, um, you know, that concept of if you know you're going to die, what will you do with your creativity? And for Flannery, she really does let her faith um, come to the forefront. And, and that's, that's really my motivation for this particular uh, collection, rather than, say, one of her novels like Wise Blood or The Violent Very Way or even the other short stories, which are, are amazing. And, and if you've never read Flannery O'Connor, certainly you could start with Good Country People which is one of the stories in A Good Man's Hard to Find. That story is maybe her, maybe her best story. I don't know. That, that one's so good. Um, a Good Man's Hard to Find is an amazing story. Um, like Whitney said, 
uh, trigger alert, you know, <laughs> violent. Um, the River is a really good story. Um, it, it has a very spiritual um, Christian emphasis, but it's pretty dark. And um, like I said, a late encounter with the enemy is, is a really good one too, um, especially because it's about a 62-year-old having to go back to college. And I don't know, there's something about that that's just endearing to me because I teach at college and, you know, occasionally, very occasionally I'll get someone that's close to that old and just thinking of having to go back to college with people that are your grandchildren's age, like, that's just, oh gosh, that would be hard. So, um, God bless you to all you returning students. I love you guys and I, I just, I really enjoy teaching you, but, um, but Whitney, you've taught a couple of these stories and certainly, um, allowed your students to write about some of these stories but but what is it about this collection that's that's appealing to you especially for this this podcast well I would echo what she said about her being more explicit about her spiritual purposes I mean I I think that quite a few of the stories and a good man is hard to find are are kind of pursuing the same project as these stories but they're just doing it more Subtly, um, like for example, a late encounter with the enemy, not to get into the weeds about it too much, but I do think it's a story about someone having a last minute epiphany about his own pride Mm -hmm. and the hollow basis for it. Like the, the general suddenly remembers that he really wasn't a hero in the war right before he's going to die. He suddenly remembers like how humiliating it was living with his wife. And it said he had basically repressed all those things and never let himself think about them and just basked in the glory of being like this old veteran who people kind of wanted to make a hero out of. And he knew in his heart that he wasn't a hero and his life wasn't, you know, really actually glamorous and exciting. There's no basis for all that pride. He has an epiphany like that that is similar to these epiphanies that people have many times in their stories where they just realize that their idols have fallen or that their sense of self, whatever puffs them up and makes them feel good about themselves is just collapsing or, you know, but it's just more explicit that it is God's grace encountering them in these later stories. And so I do appreciate that. It's kind of like, you know, the way the misfit says uh, in a good man is hard to find. The misfit says that the grandmother would have been a good woman if she had always had a gun to her head. And I think having a fatal diagnosis and worsening health is somewhat like having living with a gun to your head and you decide to prioritize what needs prioritizing and say what you really want to say. And Flannery O'Connor might have been thinking about the reception of her stories by a secular audience earlier in her career in a way that might have made her hold back or try to be tactful or try to appeal enough to slip her message in through subterfuge, you know, covertly. And then later, um, it feels, like you said, a little more no-holds-barred, like a a lightning strike rather than... um, The other stories, are they're funny and outrageous, but it's not so clear that she's drawing a stark line in the sand and saying you're either with Christ or you're against Him. 
Yeah, those are excellent points. And, you know, I, I think that's what really what we're going to get into about um, the multi-layers of these stories. Like, you bring up uh, Belay Encounter with the Enemy, which, you know, one la- layer of that story is it's about uh, an old man dying. Well, he's 104 years old. What is he supposed to do? You know, like, you expect him to die. But yet, you don't expect him to die as you keep reading the story because you think, like, He's going to make it to the end of this story because he's outlived all these other people, including his own children. Um, and so this idea of Sally Poker Sash sitting on, or, you know, walking across the stage with her grandfather sitting up there in his Confederate regalia in his wheelchair with his saber at his side. You know, the more one, one of the morals of that story is like, if you bring your 104-year-old grandfather to your college graduation, <laughs> he might die. Like, you know, it's like kind of a macabre moral, but it's like kind of practical, but it's not, that's not like the the depth of the moral. That's like the, <laughs> that's kind of funny. But then when you get into like, why does he die? Like Whitney said, he kind of lets the past come back to him as he's on the stage. And so this idea of like, why does he die? is a deeper level of the moral. And then yet another level of the moral is Sally Poker Sash putting all her hope in her grandfather representing something. And then once he's gone, all she's left with is her nephew drinking Coca-Cola, you know, with with the dead grandfather in the wheelchair, and he doesn't even know he's dead. And it's, it's so, it's so grotesque. But that's that's the word that's well, this famous you know. idea that he seemed to think he was this indomitable force who could never die mm-hmm. or something, and then suddenly it hits him for some. I can't really remember if it's like there's any reason for it, but it suddenly hits him that like he's not an indomitable force. He's sort of mm-hmm. just a weak person, and his granddaughter also seemed to have bought into that idea that maybe he, he's just like too too tough to die, too stubborn to die yes. kind of thing. I'll die when I'm good and ready. Like yes. um I feel like maybe Mrs. May says that in Greenleaf. She She's like, I'll she die does. when I'm getting ready. But um and then again, like you said, it works on this other level where the South itself, mm-hmm. that old kind of like pride and stubbornness and in, in sense of what it used to be it's clearly dying or dead but it's like not willing to admit it and then the maybe younger younger generation is kind of oblivious as to whether or not that old like southern glory is dead or alive just just doesn't even really care like the net you know like the the boy who's wheeling around the wheelchair but um like you said the stories can work on several levels and a very kind of like personal spiritual level that's about the conviction of each individual soul and sometimes they work on more of an allegorical level or like a a parable um and i I think that's what makes these stories bear rereading so well and you bring a great point about um like applying your your spiritual journey to that story like that story can have a spiritual metaphor for you, which is like, what is your idol? You know, what, what are you putting your hope in? Um, and, and I think that story is a great example of like, you have to take your spirit to it, whereas the stories and everything that rises must converge really, almost all of them hit you right in the face with like, 
think about your spirit. And so it, you don't have to kind of take your spirit into these stories. It's going gonna, it's gonna to elicit it from you or evoke it from you. Um, and like what you said, sometimes it's a very convicting way. Like you're thinking like, yeah, this character's going to get it. And then you're like, oh, no. Or you're like, I hate this guy. <laughs> yes. Oh, I hate this guy. And then he says something and you're like, man, that's exactly what I would be thinking if I were in this situation. I would be judging these people just like that. Oh, it hurts. Because um, you're in, in a lot of these stories, I've noticed you're in the head of the character in a way that makes you feel kind of complicit with the characters. It's not first person, but it's as close as to first person as you're going to get. Like, I'll read the first um, little bit of The Comforts of Home, maybe, just to kind of illustrate yeah. what I mean. Um, Thomas withdrew to the side of the window, and with his head between the wall and the curtain, he looked down on the driveway where the car had stopped. So that's pretty straightforwardly third person, right? We're just watching Thomas watch his mother, you know, drive up in the car. But then the second sentence says, his mother and the little slut were getting out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly we realize probably Flannery O'Connor's narrator is not calling her a little slut. Like, we're right in Thomas's head. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think that's something she does incredibly well, is she narrates or she has a narrator, who gives us so much insight into these characters' minds, hearts, souls. And so um, Thomas in Comforts of Home, which is going to be in episode one, um, it, it is just... I, I, I laughed so many times reading that story, and I'm going to point out almost every time when we talk about it. But, uh, <laughs> but to me... Flannery O'Connor is the most amazing combination of hilariously, hysterically funny and the most somber, sober, serious. You could never even smirk because it's so just important and weighty. Like, she does both of those in almost every story. So it's not like, oh, there's stories that are funny and there's stories that are really serious. It's like every story is really funny, every story is really serious because she has a, a, a style that uses humor. And I think that that's like the seduction of the stories. And th those aren't opposed to one another. Exactly. Um, we're both reading this book called Giving the Devil His Due, which is about um, both Flannery O'Connor and Dostoevsky. And one point that it makes early on is that Flannery O'Connor and Fyodor Dostoevsky kind of insist on writing about earthy, like down-to-earth, normal mm -hmm. things, comic things, um, very kind of embodied, and also spiritual realities, mm -hmm. and putting them together because they, if you believe that spiritual realities are just as real or even more permanently real than these physical earthly realities, there's no reason not to put them together. So there's mm -hmm. no reason the way we actually experience the most important, earnest spiritual realities is in the middle of our daily lives and our physical bodies yeah. where like ridiculous things happen. So yeah. that's why I always kind of like it when say a baby starts babbling in the middle of church in mm -hmm. the middle of a prayer or something, because that doesn't, Oh, I, th I think there's a temptation to think, oh, that broke my focus on spiritual things and now I don't feel connected to God anymore because that baby distracted me and I need to be in the zone in order to connect with God. 
Like, no, God is literally living within us through the Holy Spirit. Like, yeah. He's as close as the breath that is breathing in and out of our body. And so, therefore, He's there when I'm, like, eating Cheetos or when I fall on my face accidentally, you know, because I slipped on a banana peel or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not... God's not just there in selective moments that are extra holy. And so I think her using humor really indicates that. Like, yeah. the absurd moments or the mundane moments of life can be these moments that are suddenly broken in upon by God's grace, just like some solemn moment in that the same glass is tinting. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think you bring up a great point, which is like a lot of people associate Roman Catholicism with you know, cathedrals and, and the Pope and, and um, the archdioceses and, and, and just this, this sense of, like, um, you know, spiritual bureaucracy. And the reality is the Catholic Church is trying to follow Christ. I think that there are some things they do really well that the Protestants don't, and there are some things that Protestants do well that the Roman Catholic Church is maybe not as good at but that does to me that doesn't separate protestants and catholics from 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 each other as being siblings in christ i think that flannery o'connor is a great example of when uh, protestants denigrate catholics well be careful because you're talking about flannery here and that's my girl like i have several girls one of which is whitney one of which is josephine one of which is amy winehouse Fiona Apple used to be, and not so much anymore. But definitely, Flannery O'Connor is is my girl. Like, I, as I read these stories for this collection, I realized, oh, Flannery O'Connor is my favorite writer. Like, <laughs> because there's no writer. I mean, I love Dostoevsky too, and I love Hemingway, and I'm okay about Faulkner. And I mean, I really, I, I love Shakespeare. But to me, Flannery O'Connor brings all the best categories of all those writers I just mentioned together in one writer and her own thing. So she really has this powerful combination of, of writers. And, and, you know, we could probably mention even more, which I will let her in a second. But um, on this point, this idea of, like, Flannery O'Connor as a Catholic is, is a sister in Christ to me. And, and so reading these stories, I just... I was just so, so inspired by her faith. And that's something that we'll talk about at the end of this podcast season is like using someone else's faith to help grow your own faith, which I think Flannery really, if you had to say, what does she accomplish with these stories? I think she, she encourages other people to deepen their faith in Christ without necessarily giving them a prescription of like, here's exactly how to do it. So, Whitney, talk, talk to us a little bit more about Flannery. Like, what makes her just so special for you as, as a writer? I'm actually going to respond to something you were just okay. saying first, which may sort of answer, maybe not. Um, I was thinking, Adam and I are Baptists, and so I just thought I would add that because, yeah. you know, that's kind of the viewpoint from which we're coming at her Catholicism, but a few things you made me think of. One is that um, people are often a little confused as to why she seems to focus so much on, like, fundamentalism and Protestant, like, evangelical 
Christian faith, since she's a, a Catholic, and of course, part of that's because that's the milieu in which she lives. I mean, that's kind of the, the way that religion expressed itself in, like, middle Georgia mm-hmm. at that time. But um, it is interesting to think about the fact that she expressed in her letters and, you know, other writings sometimes uh, a deep mistrust, distrust, mistrust, um, for the way that Protestants don't have a, a central authority mm-hmm. to keep them in check so that they can go off in all kinds of wacky directions doctrinally, right? And that that's dangerous, that you get some weird heresies. Mm-hmm. out. And I, I totally see where she's coming from with that. Um, but also she seemed to have been really fascinated and kind of in awe of just the sheer kind of passion that would just keep you going um, as a kind of a rogue evangelist traveling around the back roads, you know, trying to convert people, not sponsored by a big institutional mm-hmm. church or anything like that, just driven by, and without a formal education from a seminary either, just driven by passion or being Christ-haunted, which is the phrase she used, maybe something like that. So, you see in her characters, oftentimes there will be these people who are deeply passionate about Christ and it expresses itself in the most bizarre ways that are extremely off-putting to people who are trying to be kind of respectable. And she basically refuses to let us as readers write off those people yeah. and their passion even if you do find it weird and off-putting, like, you know, and the, to challenge as a Christian reader, to challenge us to not limit God so much or so reflexively, perhaps, even while we are still wary of heresy and that, you know, wary of people who might misuse the freedom in Christ to teach things that aren't true. So mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. And also just the fact that Catholicism is you're talking about strengths and weaknesses. I think, you know, every expression of Christianity is an expression of a certain culture. True. And I love that Christianity is flexible enough to stretch and grow and expand and express Mm -hmm. itself through all sorts of different cultures um, to appeal to the intellect and the emotion and to, you know, express itself through extreme simplicity in terms of aesthetics and express itself through extreme kind of like beauty and luxury yeah. and the Catholic church has tended to kind of exemplify a side of Christian faith that is very ritualized, very beautiful, mm-hmm. very aesthetically refined. Um, and, but interestingly enough, Flannery O'Connor herself often uh, writes about, you know, saints who coming coming from very different traditions from that. It's interesting that you say that because, um, so, so before I get into what each episode is going to be, um, I'm just going to try and find this now. Um, this writer, um, Michael Mears Bruner, wrote a book called A, a Subversive Gospel, Flannery O'Connor and the Reimagining of Beauty, Truth, Beauty, Goodness, and Truth. And he is looking at um, Baron von Hugel, uh, Hugel, Hugel, um, and his his um, 
his influence on Flannery O'Connor. And one of the things that he says early on, and I am not finding it, is this really beautiful illustration that on the cross you have what what looks like the grotesque versions of beauty, goodness, and truth. That uh, the cross is the least beautiful thing. You know, someone getting crucified. I mean, watching someone getting executed in that way would be gruesome. It, it, why would it be beautiful? And goodness, I mean, the person getting executed, in this case Christ, he's not good. He wouldn't be on the cross if he was good. Like, the the, the person getting executed is guilty and, you know, deserving of this awful punishment because of their wickedness. And then truth, this idea of, like, the, the cross is is the place where people who don't abide in the truth go, and yet all of those things make the cross the most beautiful, good, and true thing because Christ, in getting on the cross to die for our sins— takes on the ugliness that we that we show. He takes on the wickedness that we commit, and he takes on the lies that govern us and that we have to escape from through faith in him to even know what lies are. Because otherwise, you know, we're, we're in the devil's hands. And so um, this is a really good book that, that we'll probably at least refer to as, as we discuss Flannery O'Connor. Uh, also, in, in my... <laughs> In my arsenal, I've got The Art and Vision of Flannery O'Connor by Robert uh, H. Brinkmeyer. Sorry, Robert H. Brinkmeyer, Jr., uh, from LSU Press. Um, and then I've got Flannery O'Connor, uh, The Obedient Imagination by Sarah Gordon, which, if nothing else, we'll at least talk about the cover, which is uh, a reference to Parker's Back, one of the stories that we're going to talk about. And then uh, Whitney already mentioned it, but I'm going name, to you know, name it again. Giving the Devil is Due, Demonic Authority and the Fiction of Flannery O'Connor and Theodore Dostoevsky by Jessica Hooten Wilson. And then finally, uh, we've got A Wreck on the Road to Damascus by Brian Reagan, I believe. I'm having to open it to look. And um, hey, there's Flannery, yeah, Brian Abel Reagan, uh, Innocence, Guilt, and Conversion in Flannery O'Connor. You know, there's a self-portrait of her. Um, and then Approaches to Teaching the Works of Flannery O'Connor, edited by Robert Donahue and Marshall Bruce Gentry. And then there's several articles as well. For example, Flannery O'Connor's Six Protestant Conversion Tales by Lorna Weidman uh, from the Flannery O'Connor Review. Um, four of those six uh, con Protestant conversions are in this collection. So those are uh, Greenleaf, The Enduring Chill, The Lame Chill, and Her First in Revelation. So uh, we've got some critical, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure to, to get us there. And then we also have this amazing short biography, uh, spiritual biography of Flannery O'Connor by Jonathan Rogers called The Terrible Speed of Mercy. So if you really want to get to know Flannery O'Connor um, a great place to start is this, The Terrible Speed of Mercy by Jonathan Rogers, because it's a short biography. I think it's only about 170 pages, yeah, less than 170 pages of text with a lot of annotations. Um, but it's a great place to start, and it's actually, um, most Flannery O'Connor scholars will attest that this is the best biography of her, even better than the Black Brad Gooch one called Flannery. Um, which just doesn't have the same spiritual uh, focus that, that this uh, Jonathan Rogers one does. And really, to, to talk about Flannery O'Connor without talking about her faith is, I mean, it, it, that, that's who she is. So you can't, I mean, it's like talking about William Faulkner without ever mentioning the fact that he lived in Mississippi.
I mean, it's it's as integral to her life as as whatever the most integral detail is to any person that writes or paints or makes music or whatever. So, um, so that is that. Uh, the episodes that we're going to do. This is the alpha episode because I, I decided I'd go alpha omega with this one because you know why not? Um, episode one is going to be everything that rises must converge the story. And the story, The Comforts of Home. So uh, we're going to talk about that one, uh, that, those two stories next. And then episode two is going to be Greenleaf and the Enduring Chill. Then episode three is going to be A View of the Woods and Judgment Day. And then episode four, The Lame Shall Enter First. That's getting its own episode because I loved that story so much. I, I, if I wasn't already married, I would have married that story. Um, episode five is going to be Parker's Back, which I think is the last story she completed before she died. And then episode six can be Revelation because, in some ways, if you want to read a story first, if you haven't read anything by her, that one's one of the most starkly obvious stories about all of the things we've discussed in in this Alpha episode about what makes Flannery O'Connor who she is as a writer and and the themes that she's focusing on. Uh, it's set in a doctor's waiting room, so maybe you're sitting in a doctor's waiting room for you know long enough to read that story. It probably it'd probably take me over an hour to read it. Maybe you're a speed reader, so maybe you could read it in 30 minutes. But uh, that'll be the last proper episode, and then the episode Omega is going to be thoughts about the collection as a whole and reflections about um, discussing these stories and new connections and synthesis moments that we, we made. Um, so we're looking forward to um, a season of Flannery O'Connor. Uh, here we go. S- uh, Summer Reading with the Deals, Season 2. Whitney, any, any parting thoughts before we adjourn? No. <laughs> we're literally going to record Episode 1 as soon as we hit stop here. So uh, we'll look forward to to discussing um, everything that rises must converge the story and the comforts of home in episode one proper. Talk to you then. Bye-bye.